As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, Mike, you know that feeling when you just hit a groove with work? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, what would you call it? Um, I don't know, like being in the zone or maybe having deep focus. Or would you say that you found a flow? I could definitely see that. That sounds like a very cool way to say it. <laughs> so, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Getting in the flow? No, no, the, the app, right? The team collaboration and productivity app Flow, which was originally developed inside of MetaLab by founder Andrew Wilkinson nearly 10 years ago, but it's now spun out into its own team um, and it's owned by Tiny Capital, Andrew Wilkinson's vehicle for buying and investing in companies. Okay, interesting. 
<laughs> it's a very relatable story for many of us, very much of a, like a David and Goliath tale. It's the story of a decade-long dedication to improving an app within an overly saturated and, and overly feature-rich productivity and collaboration market, and how they survived as a bootstrap business among a sea of venture giants. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, where your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. So are you familiar with MetaLab, Mike? I mean, I have heard of MetaLab. So MetaLab is a product design and development agency based out of Victoria, B.C., and they famously designed Slack, Uber, Coinbase, and a host of others. Okay. I mean, I'm definitely familiar with those companies. Yeah. So about 10 years ago, the founder of MetaLab, Andrew Wilkinson, decided that team collaboration was lacking and they needed some better tooling. Yeah. So I've always been a to-do list junkie and I got obsessed with a system called Getting Things Done that David Allen created maybe like uh, 20 years ago or something. And I had so much success with it. Like it really did make me way more productive. But the one area that it fell down was that you couldn't really, all, all the existing apps for getting things done and that methodology, you couldn't delegate. And so originally Flow was actually just me trying to implement that process, that methodology across the company and build software to support it. And very quickly, I realized that getting things done is this super nerdy thing that no one else really wants to do and you can't enforce it across your team. Um, but as we did that, we started realizing how valuable it was to have a global um, to-do list and delegation across the entire team. And so we started building a more generalized project management um, and to-do to -do management software and it was very unique. I mean, back then there really wasn't anybody doing uh, in-browser productivity. And MetaLab at the time was much smaller than it is today. Um, back, back then, I think when we started Flow, it was like late 2008, early 2009. I think we maybe had 10 to 15 employees. So we're getting to the point where we needed to start managing across a team, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a huge team at that point. I could see this running an agency is very tough, especially when you're designing and building all these very successful apps. Wanting to own one for yourself makes a lot of sense. MetaLab, yeah, MetaLab was the original business and it's it was a great business. We were making quite a bit of money. We had great clients, but I was watching all these other companies like 37 Signals and Harvest and uh, Campaign Monitor that were building these bootstrapped SaaS businesses. And the hard part about running an agency is that every day you wake up and it's a knife fight. You know, you're literally going, okay, we're, we're gonna run out of money in a month. We need, uh, we need work. You know, we can't hire people without uh, two months of, of pipeline and you're constantly selling. And it's kind of like you've got a train moving at warp speed and you're trying to put the track down in front of it. And when I looked at these SaaS businesses, um, you know, this idea that I could wake up in the morning and have made money overnight, that there was recurring revenue, that at the end of the day, you're just building a wonderful product and, you know, people are paying you to use it was very, very attractive. Um, and of course, both business models have major downsides, which I learned. But um, at the time, you know, that was really what I what attracted me to the business model and building it. And it was really born out of 
you know, a problem that I personally had. But it's tough. I actually tried doing the same thing when I was running an agency, Tiny Factory. We built Brandisty as a SaaS product and we were hoping we would, you know, out earn the agency through the, the SaaS product. And what happened? Did it? No, not even close. <laughs> I, I did eventually sell it to a company that was then bought by Envision. So, I mean, the code is living on an Envision server somewhere. Aww, it, well, interesting. And hey, that's still an accomplishment in itself. So I say kudos to you on that. But back to Flow. Uh, so Andrew recognized this huge opportunity and they were essentially the first in-browser productivity app to hit the market. And as they launched, you know, the excitement was growing. We were we were essentially the first out the gate with Flow, um, and it just totally took off. I mean, we had um, I think like over ten thousand uh, beta users. A lot of them paid out of the gate. It was really really popular early on. And they had an early fan in Daniel Shriver, the head of design at Square at the time. I had to log into Flow that um, from that time that no longer worked, but um, I used the product super early on, and to me it was. Um, like being like, wow, this is beautifully designed. It's super simple. And it's uh, making a, you know, it's like a, it's a beautiful product in a space that kind of, um, it's very easy to just make throwaway ugly stuff because, you know, it's just productivity. <laughs> you don't need to make that look nice. You know, it's just that thing you're going to be in every day for five, 10, 15 minutes. But because they were an agency, I bet they still had to get the client work done first. You know it, right? And at first, they didn't even have a dedicated team for Flow. So a lot of it was just done off the side of various team members' desks. You know, early on, MetaLab was, you know, doing client work. And then people on the team would jump over and they would build Flow. And we'd kind of go back and forth. And we were also all junior. We didn't know what we were doing. And so um, when we built Flow, we actually engineered it in a way that didn't really scale. And so we had to spend years re-engineering it and kind of rebuilding the infrastructure, which slowed us down a lot. I even spoke with Jesse Jones, who now is the head of product at Flow. She's been around since the very early days and was, in fact, their first support person. Listen, here's how she actually got that job. I guess it was Meta Lab, um, but probably not even that. I basically started working working at Flow as sort of like an assistant to Andrew. Um, just like he, I mean, I, it's probably still the case, um, just always has a lot of side projects going on. And uh, yeah, so I was helping him with some of those, um, but it didn't really feel like, you know, enough of like enough workload to like fill a day. Um, so I was kind of, you know, snooping around looking for like other things that I could take on just to sort of fill out, fill out my time a bit more. Um, and on a company, <laughs> we, the whole company went uh, paintballing and I was in a car with a bunch of, um, a bunch of the developers from Flow and they were saying that they really needed a support person because, you know, the person who was doing support for them at that time was uh, a junior iOS developer and he was not super into doing it long term. Um, so I was like, well, I've got time. I can I can help out. Um, and yeah, I think I think it basically like a week or so later, I, I just started um, answering support tickets. Um, kind of part-time and then eventually it became a full-time thing. And yeah, that's that's kind of how I started. It was just, I, I became, um, I don't think I was the first, um, but I was maybe the, uh, yeah, I wasn't the first support person, but I was, I was uh, definitely the first in-house support person, I guess. Yeah. 
Okay, so this is exactly like every startup I've been a part of. Everybody just <laughs> chipping in to get the work done, you know, wearing a lot of hats. Uh, now, this was around the same time as Asana's launch, wasn't it? Exactly. And Asana, well, by 2012, they had raised $28 million to pursue it in the same space. They had marketing budgets. They could hire a big team before the app actually made any money. And by 2016, they had raised nearly $100 million. But the other thing that we failed to understand was that um, there was a lot of competitors entering the market. I remember around this time, Dustin Moskovitz, maybe six months after we launched Flow, reached out to me and basically said, hey, I'm building this thing called Asana. Maybe we should buy you guys and we can do this together. Um, and I remember I flew down to San Francisco and I basically said, look, we're pretty happy doing what we're doing. We don't want to join you guys. Um, and you know, essentially he said, look, um, in so many words, I'm a billionaire and I've raised a hundred million dollars. Like we're going to beat you at this and in a very nice way. He was like a really, really nice guy. So while they were starting to market flow, Asana was also on a press tear. Here's Dustin Moskowitz, a co-founder of Facebook and the founder of Asana talking with Forbes in 2013. The best example of you know the sort of the product manifesting our values is just with with transparency. So one of the primary differences between Asana and uh, you know uh, so organizing yourself in Asana versus organizing organizing yourself in email is that the information is accessible to anyone who wants to seek it out. So almost everything we do in the company uh, exists in an Asana project somewhere, and whenever you want to go and find out information about what a team is working on or what our, our future plans are, you can just go and do a search for it and, and immediately find it. Another thing is just accountability. Um, so we literally we have a project in Asana called Areas of Responsibility that enumerates a bunch of things that we need to make sure you know somebody is spending spending time thinking about, making sure we're doing a great job with. Uh, and there's a, a list of everything, um, you know, including engineering tasks and, and cultural things, and uh, they're each assigned to a single person. Much, much more coming up right after a quick word from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So before the break, Flo had turned down an offer to be acquired by Asana, who basically said, look, we have a lot more money and we're going to win the market. And Flo was you know, bootstrap, but they had an arguably better product. But would that be enough to win the hearts and minds of you know companies internationally? I was thinking like, we're going to win because we have the best product. And I truly thought that we had this, you know, incredibly beautiful, uh, well-designed, well-thought-out product that was better. And objectively, I really believe it was for easily the first five years. But what I failed to understand is that when you have a competitor who can go out and spend $100 million on marketing, they become the name, right? It's kind of like, you know, there was MailChimp and Campaign Monitor and Emma and all these, um, you know, email newsletter softwares, but MailChimp went out and they blew their brains out on podcast ads. And now everybody just associates email news um, with MailChimp. And so they essentially did that for our part of the industry. 
And because we had been following all these bootstrapped companies, we didn't put any money into marketing at all. And so it was like a tree fell in the forest and nobody was around to hear it. So they took dramatically different approaches. Flow focused on design and the product while Asana spent on marketing while steadily knocking out features. And that's not to say that Flow didn't try to advertise. They did produce an advertisement with actually Adam Liskor of Sandwich Video at one point. One of the first, one of the first sort of like advertising things that I remember, um, you know, being produced for Flow was how it was a great way to like plan a party because <laughs> it was just very simple. You know, it was, um, yeah, it was basically very simple to use, very straightforward. Um, wasn't as complicated as a lot of the other stuff out there. It was sort of like marketing it as like, this is the thing that's not gonna get in the way of like what you're actually trying to do. Um, yeah, so that was my understanding was just like, it's task management at a very, you know, very simple, a very simple approach to task management. Oh, we should definitely play a clip from that commercial. Flow is an app from MetaLab for keeping track of the things you need to get done. This guy has to plan a party, but he's gonna need some help. So he uses Flow to get help from people he knows, like these guys. That's what Flow is for. You figure out what needs to get done and you collaborate with people who can help, like this guy. So this must have been fairly early Adam Lissagor work. And was that Andrew Wilkinson in the video? Yes, yes it was. Um, it's that bootstrap life, you know. <laughs> While Flow was seeing some success in the market, there was one thing Andrew and the team at Flow underestimated. As I underestimated Asana's ability to catch up on design, I always looked at them and said, these guys have it wrong. They're a bunch of nerdy engineers. And, you know, they, they made this very complex interface that was quite ugly. But, you know, eventually they hired great designers and they caught up in that way. Um, so it was a real awakening, rude awakening for me. Um, and then also just realizing that we had to be on multiple platforms. There was, uh, you know, we we're competing with companies like Asana that had a 50 person engineering team and we had a five person engineering team, which, you know, you can, you can try and differentiate and just be simpler. But at the end of the day, if you don't have at least basic feature parity, on all platforms, you're going to lose customers. So that was a really, really big challenge for us. So it sounds like Andrew learned a tough lesson here. And I should say, this isn't even close to the end of the story for Flow, but Andrew made this great point about the value of raising capital in a market like SaaS productivity tools. It's like we created this really great pizza parlor and then a whole bunch of venture-backed pizza parlors opened up all along the street and started selling pizza for 10 cents, but we have to charge $2. And they all have these huge R&D labs where they can make their pizza more and more interesting. And we just can't compete. At the end of the day, you have to, you have to raise capital to compete or you have to differentiate. And our product just wasn't differentiated enough. We couldn't do the 37 signals thing and say like, we're going to do way, way less because people who like to-do list systems, unfortunately like features and have a kind of table stakes expectation. But this lesson aside, it didn't dissuade them from continuing to pursue flow. After all, they had customers and fans who were passionate about the product. I mean, we just kind of kept our heads down and kept focusing on making the best product that we could um, and trying to grow it. And to be honest, like if I could go back in time, there's tons of things I would have done differently. And I think we would be a lot bigger 
um, than we are today. I mean, I'm still happy with where we're at. We have a phenomenal product. We have a great team. We have happy customers, but it's just been a more of a grind than I think it needed to because we never had that capital. Um, you know, like I've come to understand that if you're starting, let's say you want to start a brewery or something like at the end of the day, like it's crazy not to go to the bank or to go to investors and say, hey, I need to buy $500,000 of brewing equipment because you need the brewing equipment to make the beer, right? And I think we never, we were like the the um, the guy who decided to bootstrap the brewery and start really, really, really small in the basement and took 10 years to get to a point where we could actually produce at scale. When in reality, we should have just got some bank debt or investors and moved a lot faster so that we could give our customers what they really wanted. So what does flow look like today, right? Uh, That and more after a quick word from our sponsors. So before the break, we mentioned that there were customers and fans who were passionate about the product. You did. And one of those fans was Daniel Schreiber, who was the head of design at Square. Yeah, so I actually used, I mean, I've been following, so the background story, like the personal side of it is I've known Andrew for as long as Flo's been around, since the super early days of Metalab. Not super closely, but we knew each other. We would kind of interact, um, you know, somewhat often online. Um, But I didn't know him super well. Uh, But when Flo, I I still remember when um, one, I think this was maybe one or two years in. This wasn't necessarily the very initial kind of, you know, beta alpha version of, of Flow. But I remember when uh, they shared the Adam Lizagor video. And to me, that still is one of those kind of iconic defining moments. And But some time has passed between its launch and Andrew Wilkinson has a lot of other projects in the works. And in this time, there isn't always a CEO per se of Flow, um, but there's always been a leader of some sorts. I don't, yeah, I don't totally remember what it was like. I do remember, um, yeah, Andrew being very present in like the early days um, and much less so as, yeah, like I think he just like shifted his attention to other businesses and other opportunities. Um, So yeah, we always, we always had like a leader in place. There was always somebody who we felt like, oh, we can go to that person and they know, they know what's going on. Um, what was interesting is that, like, I think, you know, over a period of time, we had, you know, like three or four people in those in those roles, and each of them had kind of a different background. Um, and so, yeah, like when we had a, a designer, I think uh, leading the team, it felt like, yeah, design was was very very much top of mind. <laughs> um, and then we had a you know we had a marketing um, a marketing guy lead, and for that period of time, it felt like okay, now we're focusing on like growth and you know retention that kind of thing. Um, eventually, yeah, <laughs> so it just like it, it felt like our attention sort of shifted to different to different aspects of the company, um, depending on who's, uh, who was in charge. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but I mean, I always felt, or I, I did for like the first few years at least, um, that Andrew was like kind of still around, um, and had, yeah, and had, and like had, I mean, like, I totally understand why, like, I think it's like his baby. So I think he felt like a certain attachment to it or like, felt a a certain sense of ownership and wanted to like continue to um, contribute. Um, But eventually I think, yeah, it just felt like 
we had the right team in place and, you know, we were able to make decisions and like kind of had everything covered. And I think that at that point, like he, be, he became much less present. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to 2018 and Flo is looking for a new CEO who could kind of carry the torch of design within the company. And then Andrew and I reconnected and, and I met Chris um, in, um, in 2018. They came out to Boulder, Colorado. I had moved here a couple years previous and uh, we just went and grabbed coffee. And literally, uh, there was nothing, flow wasn't even something on the table. It was just a, hey, we'd love to, you know, catch up. Let's all grab coffee while you're um, out in Boulder together. And so, you know, I, I went to that coffee uh, with no expectations at all of where that would go. Um, flow wasn't even on my radar at the time. But, you know, if, if for anyone that knows Andrew and Chris, they're masters at, um, you can always walk into a meeting like that with them. And then suddenly somewhere in the middle of it, it's like the tables have turned and you went there to kind of learn from them and, and see what they were doing. And all of a sudden it's like, well, what are you interested in and what are you doing and, and what do you think you'll do next? And so, you know, that, uh, th that happened to me in the, in the best way. And, um, you know, uh, like, uh, nothing. So just personally, really for the last five years, the, the journey I've been on is trying to find some way to take my background, which doesn't line up very neatly with being an entrepreneur, you know, with kind of uh, leading a company and stepping into that role. But that's something I've always wanted to do. And so I've just been um, kind of on my own personal journey of like, how do I do that? Do I want to do the kind of startup venture capital back thing? And, you know, what I knew from being at, at, uh, at, at Square for five and a half years from when it was super tiny all the way through IPO and uh, helping and investing in a lot of early stage companies is um, I think there's a lot that's wonderful about that world and that experience, but that wasn't something that I personally wanted to do. I didn't want to be the entrepreneur that raised venture capital. And so what I loved about um, what Andrew and Chris have built and really their approach is I, th I think they're doing it right in that I, I think the holy grail is to build enduring companies. And I think it's very difficult to do that with venture capital. Um, you know, and if you look at the stats, like the, some of the biggest companies are venture capital backed. And, um, but I think that the, uh, jury is still very far out <laughs> on whether any enduring companies or how many enduring companies are going to be built. And from what I understand, it took another six months of interviews to select Daniel for that CEO role. Yeah, and when he took over the company, they had just gone through a pretty massive downsizing. Um, and so when I uh, finally, you know, accepted the offer and uh, and um, took over as the CEO of Flow, the company had gone through a pretty massive transition. So the period previous was one of um, just a huge focus on growth. And I think one of the things that kind of came out of that was um, that uh, they just weren't able to turn in the growth numbers that they had had hoped and expected that they would. And so they found themselves in a position where they were, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, hemorrhaging a, a lot of cash every single month. And so what happened before I came into the role was that they did a, a reset of the team where they basically looked at the entire company. They looked at the team that they had. They looked even at the kind of software they were using and the tools and expenses that they had. And they just tried to right size it to where the company was profitable we had the team members that were absolutely essential. And so I don't have a great sense for what that meant, but I, but my rough sense is the company went from somewhere uh, 30 plus to somewhere around 12 when I took over. And from Jesse's perspective? 
I mean, it wasn't the first time that we'd had somebody, you know, from the outside, makes it sound like a cult, um, came, <laughs> came on as a leader. So that aspect wasn't, wasn't new. Um, uh, yeah, I guess it was different in that, like, we had, um, we had lost, like, or like our team had kind of shrunk in size um, in January of last year. Um, and was about, you know, like uh, we had a, you know, our director of engineering was about to go on that leave, you know, in, in a short amount of time. Um, and so it just felt like, uh, yeah, suddenly we didn't have this like wealth of resources that we did at one point. Um, so yeah, it wasn't necessarily like the change of leadership um, that was, you know, kind of an adjustment. It was like that coupled with like, oh, we're going to have to rethink about or we're going to have to rethink how we currently work because we have to do, you know, the same amount or more <laughs> with fewer resources. And so I took over a team that had just gone through a pretty traumatic experience. <laughs> um, I took over a team that, um, you know, had been ex executing kind of toward a vision and, and toward an idea of what they were building. And all of that was kind of gone for, for the moment. And I also took over a team with, with a lot of holes. You know, we didn't have an iOS, we didn't have anyone on iOS or Android when I took over. We didn't have anyone on product. We had no one on design. We had no one in marketing or growth functions. We had no one in customer success. Um, and, uh, and so for me, you know, I think for the team, it was obviously, it was a little bit different. And a lot of the first, I would say three to six months was just a heavy focus on, um, kind of gelling together and getting on the same page and getting into a good groove as a team and really making people feel safe and excited and like we were, um, you know, going to be on a better path. Um, and then, you know, personally for me, it was um, everybody, the, the thing that I, I will say absolutely is everybody that was on the team uh, has been incredible. Like I've been super fortunate to have the team that I had when I when I took over. And we have people on the team that have been with Flow for five years, eight years. Some people literally as, you know, as long as the product's been around have been working on Flow. Definitely a tough situation to come into, but that is the job, right? <laughs> That's true. I mean, rarely do you enter a new position, have everything set up for success. The job is really to figure out, you know, what is the new direction? Um, and how do I work within the constraints that I'm given to figure out how do I grow this business? Um, and so, yeah. And so that was kind of the team side, the business side, um, you know, from the time I took over uh, we had been basically contracting as a, as a business. And so what we've been, that what we've been working on over the last 18 months is, is, uh, two things. And really the way to take maybe a massive step back, the way that I tried to think about it was one, come into the role with as few outside assumptions as possible, really get to know and understand the team and build that trust with the team, and then try to break apart the business and the company and the product so that we were focusing on broadly, this is super, super rough, but what are we going to, how are we going to market the product? Uh, well, maybe to take a step back, it really, I guess, from in my mind, it all started with the product because when I took over and I, you know, we could see that the product was organically not growing. We had people that were actively churning. Um, and so our business was contracting low single digits per month. It would be something like, I don't know, two, 3%, something like that. But that is, you know, 
if you're an entrepreneur, well, maybe even say it better. If you're the CFO for a company, that's scary. If you're the entrepreneur for for the company, that is um, scary. It, it's definitely something that seems manageable in the short term, but it's absolutely not sustainable in the long term. And so um, my analysis of that was that we had, so there were, there was definitely multiple things that were broken because the product wasn't, in my mind, if you have a healthy business, that's in a good point of stasis, meaning, you know, you don't really have to spend on, on acquiring new customers. You likely have a business that's treading water or ideally it's growing low single digits month over month, just based off customers that are excited about it and kind of natural growth, even just from that customer base. Um, so we didn't have any of that. And so I, the, the way that I tried to think about it was, okay, well, we're going to basically invert the equation we're going to put all of our focus and attention on the product first and foremost. Then we, once we, you know, and going forward, we're going to have the product. And this is really something that I've always looked to and taken away from my time at Apple is if you look at, um, you know, everything that Apple does incredibly well, you know, one one thing that I um, that I point to all the time is if you look at their marketing and you compare them to something like the Samsung, you know, and you will look at a Samsung ad and uh, it doesn't focus on the product at all. It invents a story that kind of at the end says, well, if you like this or if you enjoy this, you should go check out the product. But they'll basically fictionalize and create a whole story around it. Whereas Apple, their you know whole ethos from the very beginning is you, we have to first and foremost make the world's most incredible products. Then when we market them, we market them in a very sophisticated way, but the product's always front and center. And to me, that's always just really resonated where if you, uh, you, know, if you get the product right, which is I think for us and for any business like us, that is the whole grail that's what that's where every all success all growth i think stems from and so we put a lot of attention to the product and then on top of that the idea was how can we get the branding and the marketing and the positioning better so that we are no longer a me too product and we actually can compete on our own terms with our own story and our own ideas and then the last thing on top of that was just thinking through things like pricing and packaging which is kind of a I don't know, corny, cheesy label, but it's largely, you know, if you focus on the product and then you find a way to market it, then you also, I think, want to think about how you, how you, um, yeah, how you price and package it. And really what that is in my mind is it just all goes to how are you going to compete in the marketplace and, and, uh, and how are you going to be profitable at that? And so those are the things we've kind of in broad brushstrokes worked on over the last 18 months. So from what I understand, they just released a huge update, a major milestone for the company, right? Yeah, they're calling it Flow X, and it's as if Slack and Jira, or you know, linear as I prefer, came together in a beautiful interface. So it essentially replaces two tools with one. Yeah, and it creates a bit of peace for your team. So everything is in one place. It's well organized. Slack and and task management is is all intercoupled. But we should mention this is a really hard process when you're overhauling an app that, you know, after a decade with a fraction of the team you once had. Exactly. It's, it's not easy, right? Uh, here's Daniel. Way easier in my mind to do something like these solving the zero to one problem where you're a new competitor to the market. You don't have existing customers that have used you for a very long period of time because it means that no one's attached to what you've had previously and how it's functioned. And I think the really difficult thing that we've tried to do is 
reinvent the product so that we feel like we can build on top of it and take it in a really interesting, ownable direction. And at the same time, be as thoughtful and careful and precise as possible of, you know, we do need to remove some features and functionality that we don't intend to build or we no longer think are, are, are right for flow. And how do we do that without alienating customers? And that's been really, really, really challenging. So if you're interested in checking out the new flow, you could go to getflow.com. And if you want more product stories, tune in next week wherever you listen to podcasts right here on rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com. <laughs>